We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him, continuing with Shahab Ahmad. Uh, um, uh, what is Islam? What page number is this? Um, 12. Page 12. Paragraph beginning, these views of the nature of divine truth. Right, right. These views of the nature of divine truth are in direct contradiction of the letter of the graphically and painfully re- reiterated theology and eschatology. eschatology of the Quran that is taken as a construct, uh, constitutive. constitutive of general Muslim creed and were as such famously condemned as definitive unbelief denial of divine truth by the great proof of Islam. Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. In his, landmark work, in his landmark work, The Refutation of the Philosophers, a denunciation which, Michael Momura notes, was not uttered for the sheer rhetorical effect, but was an explicit charge made in terms of Islamic law. Okay, so maybe you'll feel a little bit you know, happier after with this paragraph. <laughs> so yeah, so our discussion yesterday was that Ibn Sina is saying that there are people, there is a higher truth than what is in the Quran. Okay. Not a higher Quran that uh, someone can have in this world. Nothing's going to be higher than that in this world. But there are people who can access a higher truth. And the prophets, however, were people who were translating these things for the masses. Okay. And so then Abu Hamid al-Ghazali comes along and says, no, that's kufr. Right? He, didn't say, he didn't just say that's wrong. <laughs> He's saying that's kufr. Okay. Wow. And, but then... Which one's Islam, right? And so the point he, so the point Shahab is making, is that these are directly contradictory views, by giant, giant scholars. Okay, um, and so which one then becomes Islam, right? And so Al Ghazali is going through this lens of Islamic law, um, uh, whereas Ibn Sina is going through a lens, for example, of philosophy. Because remember, the question is what makes Islamic philosophy Islamic philosophy? You know. Okay, continue. Are these definitive phil- philosophical ideas Islamic or un-Islamic? Ibn Sina, who spoke of the true Sharia, which brought to us by which was brought to us by our Prophet, our Lord, and our Master Muhammad, God's prayer be upon him and his family, himself clearly thought of the truths at which upon the truths at which he arrived by philosophical rational means as being true to Islam, and in answer to those who thought otherwise, proclaimed himself. It is not so easy and trifling to call me an unbeliever. No faith is better founded than my faith. Mm -hmm. I am singular in my age, and if I am an unbeliever, in that case, there is no single Muslim anywhere. So what do you think about this this, this claim? Um, Meaning, uh, I am the one, right? I am... uh, In in this epic or era? Yeah. Yeah. So... If I'm not Muslim, then nobody's Muslim. Wait, Prophet Sallallahu saying this? No, no, no. Ibn, Ibn Sina is saying this about himself. Oh, wow. my Lord. Ibn Sina also <laughs> speaks of Isma. the Prophet, peace be upon him, as Isma. our Lord, our Master, you know, and Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? Yeah. So what do you think? He didn't disrespect the Prophet, so I'll give he did, yeah, Okay, so, so yeah, he's clear on the, on the role of the Prophet, peace be upon him. He is not calling you know, himself a Prophet. But what I don't get about his logic is, like, if there's this higher truth, right, then why didn't the companions 
why did the companions themselves bound themselves by this law? So uh, I think um, um, he's not necessarily there's a higher law, right? No, but he's saying the law is, is at a level for the masses. For the masses right? as an instrument. But I'm saying the Sahaba were not the masses. Um, but the Sahaba were the participants of the masses, right? But uh, I think a different way to frame it is you're saying that they didn't say or do any of that, but perhaps they did. Here, here, I'll give you one I, point. No, so I thought okay. about that, right? Like, perhaps, but like, but like. Okay, so wait. So what? Uh, when the prophet peace upon him quote unquote dies. Yeah. Okay, what did Abu Bakr say? If you worship like a man, if you worship Muhammad, then he's dead. Yeah. Did he say that the prophet is dead? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, <laughs> there is a belief um, that every Hajj, all the prophets go and perform Hajj. Oh. Yeah. In like the physical. Like right now. Like physically. I mean, I don't know, you know, what does physically mean? You mean speaking. like I, you can see them, touch them in the way I can like see you in this room? Not necessarily. Maybe. Not necessarily. Probably not. Yeah. I'm saying physically, going back to the Asad book, that's a, that could be a bothered category. Yeah. I've heard I mean, that is there is there any text that I've come across that even hints at that? No. But I will say that our, our, comp, our understanding of death is, you know, you know the soul leaves the body, right? Um, but, but it's not necessarily out of this world. Right. And, cool. and then on top of that, um, that's how we understand death. But what if death is just the, uh, uh, the inability to animate? Okay, that's all great. Yeah. But that doesn't have anything to do with my point. Okay, no, I mean, no, no, but so what I'm saying is that when Abu Bakr is saying that the prophet is dead, yeah. you're hearing the, pro- or no, no, Abu Bakr is saying, if you worship Muhammad, Muhammad's dead. Okay? Yeah. Um, and so we're all hearing Abu Bakr saying the prophet died, and if you worship him, so sad, too bad. Yeah. Right? Uh, or Abu Bakr is saying, yeah. if you worshiped him, okay, that object of worship is gone, okay, can do nothing. But, it doesn't mean he died in the same way that we think of death. Meaning, all of their statements, or many of their statements, could be reflecting an understanding of higher truth. Okay. Or, take it from a different perspective. This might be a little bit easier to, to accept. So, the Hadith of Jibreel. Okay. Um, when does it take place, roughly? Which one? Near the end. So, this is the Jibreel Islam. Like, somebody walks in, we don't know who he is. He's sitting right in front of the Prophet, peace be and he starts asking, What is Islam? What is Iman? Uh, right? Near the end. Near the end. Who's narrating the hadith? Omar. So, Omar saw Angel Jibreel. So, all of those Sahabas in those rooms saw Angel Jibreel. Okay. Uh, which means that they had enough of a status of purity that they could see Angel Jibreel. Yeah which uh, could be supporting this point right here. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think it's no, true. No, no, like, it can't be. It can't be true. No, I just, I just rationally don't see, like, how, like, that supports this point. That can which be point? true. They can be reaching this higher That's what level we're saying. of Islam, but that doesn't mean the, like, the law is negated. Um... Like I'm I don't think there's, <clears throat> I'm not saying there isn't a higher truth. My mm-hmm. my bone to pick isn't that. So like, what if we what if we reframe it? What if we reframe it from the perspective? Okay, then okay, let's do two points. What if we uh, so point number one is this is uh, quicksand you're in right now. Just 
No, I mean, no, no, I'm trying to make it a little like, bit more palatable. It's going to be a losing battle regardless. <laughs> no, so to make it a little bit more palatable, uh, what if we're saying that the law has to be prescribed for the masses because they will struggle to follow it otherwise, but if you're at this higher level of truth, you don't need the law because you're already following it. So Abu Bakr is not drinking before the prohibition against drinking came down. Uh, what do you think about that? That okay, uh, someone at the level of Ihsan yeah. is they're already, already following. You they're know? already going to be following the law. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Now, well, something completely different. How do you explain Khidr? Okay. He kills a boy without a trial. It's a boy. Right? I don't, I mean, Khidr could be the proof of all this. <laughs> Unless we just say Khidr is just like a, you know, this one, a one-time, one person. Y'all know who Khidr is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that whole surah, surah, uh, surah al-Kahf, everything's like backwards in that surah, or inversed, and, you know, Khidr is another example in that surah, and Khidr is a non-profit teaching a prophet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so digest it for a while. Couldn't you say then, um, one thing you could say in response to this, as far as like, you know, you're, you're saying like the Sahaba could be at this higher level, um, then couldn't you go to the example of the Sahaba in, with these kinds of sort of ideas and say they themselves didn't espouse them or didn't like engage them or something? That's sort of what does that mean? Like, you know, um, what's the word here? Like, they didn't get into these types of specifics, and they warned about getting into these types sure. of specifics. I mean, um, we could, I mean, look what else was not present among the Sahabas. Was the Sharia present as his concept among the, among the Sahaba? Maybe, probably not, right? Mm-hmm. They're following the Quran, the Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, um, this it idea wasn't of, seen as a, as a thing. Yeah, entity. like the idea of categorizing things as fard, sunnah, wajib, etc. Right. It's later. That hasn't, that hasn't it's there, the, the material is all there directly, um, but as this organized system. But it's like, it's a lived reality as yeah. opposed to a system. Yeah. yeah. And that's what this book is making me realize already, like that the things that we just, like, conceptualize as a given now, yeah. might not have even been seen like exactly. that. Exactly. Then yeah. or in other parts of the world now. And thus... Uh, it makes it more easy to understand why we'd have these varying opinions mm-hmm. that are all tracing themselves back to the same material. Yeah. And that's part of his point. That's why my theory is still that, all right, if we want to identify what is Islam, we would identify it as, you know, uh, that from an anthropology sense, not from a belief sense, you know, the communities that connect themselves to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. Robert Hall is thus quite correct when he says that Muslim philosophers put forward philosophy as the version of the Muslim faith that is best for the intellectually gifted believer. What do you think about that? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, okay, actually before that, let's go back, to, uh, let's combine that with this, the quote. It is not so easy and trifling to call me a kafir. No faith is better founded than my faith. I'm singular in my age, and I'm an unbeliever. In that case, no single... If, so if I am an unbeliever, then there's no single Muslim anywhere. What do you think? Uh, so Ibn Sina is saying this. It just this. sounds really arrogant. Okay, so what if we said Imam al-Ghazali is saying this? I would still say the same thing. Okay. 
and then you got Shah Waliullah, who yes. is the greatest, okay. you know, greatest that's self. The, that's the quote I thought of when I read this. So there have been multiple figures. There have been multiple figures in our history, who. Okay, so 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 uh, let's put it like this. There's a theory in terms of hierarchy of spirituality, that every era has the Qutb, who is the spiritual pole of the era. Okay. And then there's, I don't know what the term would be here, like sub that are, you know, the spiritual poles of their particular regions. sub sounds too close to you. Isn't that what, Abdal, isn't that what the Abdals are? Abdals are, are, are related, but they're different. It's just like these random people who seem to be all over the place. There's like 36 of them or 18 yeah. or something like that. Yeah. These yeah. things are nutty, man. Yeah. These are in primary sources. And, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. And, and so, yeah, yeah, we wouldn't call them nutty, but we'd say they're in primary sources, meaning they're mind-blowing. Yeah. So... Um, and so Shawaliullah is calling himself Qutb al-Zaman. He's saying, I am the spiritual pole, the spiritual foundation of my era. Okay. You, and I, he goes on to being, you know, perhaps one of, if not the most influential scholars of like the last past 300, 400 years. His name, the name he gives himself is Qutb al-Zaman. He gives himself also Shawaliullah, the king of the friends of God. Did you I, you often notice this language spoken in terms of um, by um, guys who are, or not guys I say guys kind of rude. folk uh, scholars who who tend to found like Sufi tariqas as well. This is a very similar language that's used where you know it's it's for like a, a, like a common believer you think oh my god this is like crazy how could you say this but mm-hmm. it would be something like you know like I was handed. Like Khilafah by the Prophet, like mm-hmm. you know, very just like super powerful, mm-hmm. just out of this world mm-hmm. type of stuff, and they say it very confidently, no, no doubt in it type mm-hmm. of thing, and you're like, whoa. Mm-hmm. So another point to think about, which you know is kind of related to what we're seeing in this book, uh, in our contemporary era, we tend to get very socialist when it comes to faith, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah, someone will have more or less faith, but. Uh, it's like almost not fair if someone is off the charts or is gifted with being off the charts versus someone else, right? Like we all understand people have different amounts of wealth and then the socialists will say, no, it should be equal distribution. And sometimes we get that way about faith too. And he's saying, no. Uh, Ibn Sina saying there are some people. He's like, no, he's a ruthless capitalist. (laughs) Yeah, that there are some people who who, uh, have faith that, is, you know, in the stars compared to someone else's faith. Um, That would not be something that should be taught to the masses, because then that especially gives, you know, you know, celebrity worship. Yeah. You know, because it could be that some of these people um, were charlatans that the people following have taken on as saints, right? But it's also possible that some of those people, you know, when they said, you know, stuff like that, that they were speaking truthfully uh, about truthful th- truthful things. Yeah, and that there was no, like, uh, Aryans in their art when yeah. they said it. I told Muzar for something once, and the, like, I was like, how could you know? And then he just looked at me, and he was like, well, Olia, do recognize Olia. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> that's that's that sounds like something I would say, but yeah. That's a primary source. <laughs> right yeah. So, so let's continue. The relationship of philosophy to Islam is further complicated by the fact that uh, Avicenna philosophy, philosophy constituted and was acknowledged by Muslims as constituting the basis of post-Avicenna Islamic scholastic theology. At the same time that some of that 
some of Evanson's most crucial philosophical conclusions were denounced by practitioners of Islamic theology. The philosophical method that led them to these conclusions was incorporated into the standard textbooks of scholarly of scholastic theology that was taught in madrasas down to the 20th century. Thus, in the 13th century, 7th century of Islam, the great North African intellectual Ibn Khaldun complained in his introduction to in his introduction yeah. to history. The problems of theology have been confused with those of philosophy. This has gone so far that one discipline is no longer no longer distinguishable from the other. Okay, so a couple points here. So even if people were to argue that Ibn Sina is a heretic or is preaching heresy or kufr, his material is taught in the madrasa as foundational to Islam. Right? So this whole field, ilm al-kalam, uh, which sometimes gets called dialectic theolo- theology or systematic theology, this idea of basically trying to figure out the philosophical underpinnings of how does all this stuff work, right? And, yeah, his stuff is all taught. Okay? And so you have one group of people that is calling him a kafir, yet it's almost like they're still using his textbooks, not as examples of what's bad, but this is, you know, this is how our dean works, okay? And so that makes it more fascinating. And then the other point here um, is that people don't understand the difference between philosophy and theology. Um, and so, where was it? What was the term that was used? Um, I'm missing the, the, the quote. But essentially, the point being that when we label it as theology, suddenly everyone accepts it. When we label it as philosophy, nobody accepts it among the orthodoxy. But a lot of that philosophy is the foundation for a lot of our orthodoxy. Um, but that is also one of the questions in Christianity. What is the difference between philosophy and theology? Right. And it might seem like we would say, well, theology is when you put God in it as um, a, a fixed part. I mean, part of the idea of philosophy is that you're free to think about whatever. Um, theology is a little bit different. Theology is looking at what is confirmed. Okay. Like when you're talking about the book, um, theology is looking at what can we confirm about the unseen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What can we take as fact about the unseen? Given okay. our set of assumptions, right? Sorry? Given our set of assumptions? Given text. Yeah, starting from text. Right? What can we take as, meaning the Quran and, and the Prophet, okay. what can we take of the unseen as certain? Like Allah, the Prophets, the books, the messengers, right? So forth and so on. Philosophy is more intellectually, you know, it's saying that the whole world is designed to bring you closer to God. And so then how does that happen? Through thought. Um, That's essentially a difference between the two. But if you listen to, look at the language, it looks almost the same. But they are two different fields with two different functions. Okay. Ibn Khaldun's statement, and we should remember that he was a hostile witness to philosophy, confounds several, several centuries in advance what has most eruded scholarly scholarly historian of the natural sciences and philosophy in Islam, A.I. Sabra, has criticized as the widely held but downright false marginality thesis put forward by modern students of Islamic philosophy, namely the notion that scientific and philosophical activity in medieval Islam had no significant impact on the social, economic, educational, and religious institutions. 
that those who kept the Greek legacy alive in Islamic lands constituted a small group of scholars who had little to do with the spiritual life of Muslims, who made no important contribution to the main currents of Islamic intellectual life, and whose work and interests were marginal to the central concerns of Islamic society. Okay, so marginality thesis, I think you understand. It's basically saying that something wasn't really a big part of, of the history. So in this case, that the whole development and production of philosophy didn't really have much role in anything in terms of Islam. And so this one particular scholar is saying, okay, that's just absolutely false. Okay, that philosophy has always had a major presence. Uh, I think uh, much of Imam al-Ghazali's criticism of philosophy, number one, that book was commissioned by Nizam al-Mulk, the head of, of the empire. Um, it wasn't a book that Ghazali's writing on his own, The Incoherence of the Philosophers. Uh, but the other thing is, I think his big critique of philosophy is that it is not a practical science, that it is abstract. Okay. And, and then Averroes is responding to him saying, y you actually just don't really get how philosophy works. Okay. That... Uh, you know, related to this quote of like the intellectually gifted believer, that's how, you know, uh, some people are. Some people need to be in the realm of the abstract. Good. Um, and that's where their Islam uh, develops. Uh, but yeah, this one scholar is saying, no, philosophy has always been present with a practice. The marginality thesis has arisen, at least in part, from a failure to distinguish between the socially rarefied and intellectually specialized nature of the technical practice of philosophy as an undertaking in a society. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the broader intellectual and cultural effects of philosophy as diffused through and taken up in the endemic discourses of those societies in which philosophy is practiced. While philosophers do philosophy, many other people are affected by it. Okay, so that, that's, that's uh, a big point. Are you about to... I have a small question. In like, the work you do with students and just people in the community, do you, like, how, how does that look in terms of how people like, find and develop their Islam? Do you think that most people are like, abstract? or? Oh, um, <clears throat> I do come across a few people who are abstract. The vast majority of people are not. Right, uh, but there are some people who they they seem to function in the abstract realm, um, and sometimes it's occasionally it's a student who does not at all seem to be that way. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking of one student who who, who uh, used to go here who and I don't think well, I don't I mean anyway so who um, you know she'd come and ask me all these questions and I'd give her these answers and then she'd ask me other questions related and I'd give her these answers. And then, boom, suddenly she, she gets it. And I'm like, and she's like, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, I don't even know what I said, right? But, like, the concept suddenly um, made sense for her. That if the concept didn't work for her, then she can't function, right? Uh, I think in our era, with the dominance of screens, whether it's on our phone or, or on the computer or the television or movies or whatever, uh, I think the vast majority of us live in a realm of imagination more than we realize, right? Which is separate than the people who live in, in abstract thought, right? Um, where we layer on all kinds of meaning that is not necessarily there just because we're so conditioned to live in the imagination. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it's going to be like when all of us are going to be walking around you know, wearing goggles, like Google goggles, whatever they're called. I mean, that seems to be like just around the corner. And, you know, what is your perception of reality going to be then? Right? 
but that's a different crowd. You know, I'm saying that there are some people who can't not think in abstractions. Mm -hmm. To this point, however, historians of Islam have yet to carry out Sabra's desiderium. The falsality of the marginality thesis can be best demonstrated by offering a description of an alternative picture, one which shows the connections with cultural factors and forces. Okay, so this, this other point is huge. Philosophers do philosophy, but many others are affected by it. This is absolutely true of American society. You know, I think um, maybe differently in, in your classes with me, um, we've gone through Joseph Campbell, right? Do we go through Joseph Campbell in Faith Foundations? Do we talk about Joseph Campbell with you guys? Okay, so... So, I mean, the fun backstory is Joseph Campbell was a professor of mythology. So he's this expert on all kinds of mythology. And he taught at USC, which has one of the biggest film schools. And so way back in, in, the, in the 60s, um, he has a film student uh, who is, you know, taking his classes. And Joseph Campbell's also arguing that all mythologies have some of the same core steps. Like, all mythologies have a hero. So go through every culture in history, there's a heroic figure. Okay. And this, uh, that's, I mean, he might be related to that, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think he is. Um, and so then the hero goes through these same steps. Like, uh, the hero is this regular person, regular life, and then some events calls this hero to action. And, and he refuses, because for whatever reason, he's not going to leave his life. And then some compelling event um, gives the hero no choice but to get into the action. And then there's a series of trials, and eventually the hero enters, so to speak, the belly of the beast, and there eventually has, you know, an ultimate confrontation, right? So, so this film student is taking Joseph Campbell's philosophy and decides to make a movie about it called Star Wars, right? Which then becomes the foundational model for all Hollywood for the next 30, 40, 50 years, right? Maybe 40 years now, right? And so, so the point is, that's an, era, an example of where philosophy is done by somebody, or mythology is done by somebody, but then it affects other people. Much of how America works uh, has a lot of philosophy built into it. Sometimes it might be philosophy that then gets confirmed by social science, then gets uh, transformed into policy. Can we, can we say uh, critical theory is one of these things where it just seems to be, especially now in our discourse anyway and how we look at things, I can say, you know, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, like the, people didn't really look at things this way in terms of like race, you know, stuff like that. Like it just seems way more, you know, social structure, systematic oppression, stuff like this, it just seems way more present now. Yeah, I mean, I think all of those are the lineage of Marx, ah, you know, okay. and, and so um, uh, there are different details or different shades of essentially what Marx brought. That's, that's, that's my theory. Um, um, I think it's more than a theory. And so, uh, so I would say yes to your question, and I'm even tracing it further back, Wow. you know, that I think Marx, uh, he, he dominates a lot of the humanities. Yeah. Right? Um, and maybe even the, the social sciences. I don't have as much detailed experience in the social sciences, but he's very present. You know? In a separate monograph, Ninid Filpovic and I attempt to enter Alia to demonstrate and depict the central place of Islamic philosophy in the larger discourses, practices, and consciousness of 
of one historically significant Muslim society, that of the Ottomans. Some sporadic forays in that direction for historical societies of Muslims at large will also be made in the present book by means of a major representative examples beginning in a few pages with the consideration of the central and seminal role in the history of societies of Muslims of what one scholar of Islam has called philosophic religion. So, once again, the overall point he's making is what makes it Islamic, which should also be asking what makes, uh, what would make philosophy un-Islamic, right? And then, for our purposes, what we're saying is that, okay, you have different people that you'll have in your community that approach Dean in different ways. And so, the textbook way of, you know, following the Farad and so forth and so on, it may be that for some people that just doesn't work. Okay? And yet it may be that such a person can still get to the top level of paradise. Okay? Again, this is not something that you, you preach in a Jummah Khutbah, in part because it's too difficult to swallow, and it also it can give people a bunch of excuses to get all narcissistic. Yeah, that's me. I'm different, right? Right? And, but... Uh, in my experience, you know, with, with, with talking to students, uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? That with different students, each one, is, the goal is to figure out, okay, how to get them um, on a straightish path or how to get them improving in their relationship with the divine. And there's these assignments that I give to the vast majority of students, but then there's some that I know that's not going to work, right? That they just operate differently, and all these things could be illustrating that. Sorry? Which no, no, I was just laughing. I don't I was like, or oh, they're just lazy. Or they're just lazy. Uh, there are some who I think are lazy, but then that's also a, a thing to, to be addressed. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry? Oh, the underlying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm halfway through every Ramadan. I start, like, I just pick it up again. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. Like, it stops. I'm like, I'm done reading this. Like, uh-huh. it's. I don't, so, so, no, I, don't, I don't like intentionally do it, but it just happens. Like I tell myself. I think I've done the underlining exercise cover to cover maybe eight times. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah. But I, I, I still continue to do it. Yeah. yeah. I try about. to do the grateful thing, too. Yeah, yeah. Same here. Yeah. So there's some students I actually make them text me, um, and that's how they, get, they do it. Right, that they actually text Let's me. Let's not right. do that because I, I just won't text you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll never maybe, meet for class again. Maybe that'll you'll be too ashamed. That'll be my yeah. strategy. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. One important symptom that helps dispel the, the notion of philosophy as a marginal foreign science in the discourses of Muslims is the swift historical replacement in both the discipline of philosophy and in the discourse of Muslims at large of the Greek-derived term falsafa. Mm-hmm. With the Quranic Arabic term hikama. Hikma. Hikma. <laughs> My brain's <laughs> off. Matusa. Okay, okay. He gives us wisdom to whom he gives wisdom to whom he wills, and he gives who is given. Hikma has been given in abundant good, but none are cognizant of this save those possessed of understanding. So Ulul al Bab. Uh, perhaps those are the people uh, that have uh, the higher connection. Right? <laughs> Don's like, no, no, I cannot accept. <laughs> yeah. So that, that is one of the, the points of exploration when Allah Ta'ala speaks of the ulul al-bab. Literally, these are the people of, like, beating hearts. Um, are those just people who uh, have just good wisdom and stuff? Are these, like, the elite of the elite? 
the sabekun, the sabekun, the foremost of the foremost. Um, um, that's one of the explorations. The interesting thing is that falsafa uh, is a foreign word. What we find in much of our history, um, you didn't see that many foreign words Arabicized, unless they already were, you know, at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So, falsafa is a foreign word. Sufi is a foreign word, right? And, I mean, some people connect Sufi with, you know, tasawwuf, but that's a theory. But tasawwuf uh, might itself be taking the word Sufi and then Arabicizing the word, right? Um, Sharia is it's, it's Arabic. Um, fiqh would be the different example. Fiqh has been given a very specific meaning. Okay? Fiqh is understanding, yeah. right? But it's, it's come to mean the interpretation of the Sharia, right? And, and so, from a theological perspective, or from a linguistics perspective, that part, I think, is fascinating. Nevertheless, uh, many, uh, many emerged uh, the idea, or many have said the idea of falsafah is what hikmah is referring to. There's different uh, interpretations of hikmah in the Quran, especially when it's, con- it's kitab and hikmah, so we gave the book and the wisdom. So one theory is the book and the wisdom is the Quran and the sunnah, right? So the hikmah there becomes sunnah. Um, but another theory is wisdom or insight, or another theory is this. Yeah. Like with Luqman alayhi salam, wisdom is gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Ibn Sina himself designated hikmah a real true philosophy, a first philosophy which imparts validation to the principles of the rest of the sciences, and that is wisdom in real truth. Hikmah is the perfecting of the human soul by conceptualization of things and by the verification of theoretical and practical real truths to the extent of human capacity. As such, Hikmah is knowing knowing of the idea and reality of the universal truth of divine creation. That is to say, Hikmah is knowing of the truth of God, as Ibn Sina wrote, it encompasses divine science. Okay, so this goes back to the point. Theology is, or kalam um, and usul al-din, they are basically defining what is concrete of the unseen, what is factual of the unseen. Philosophy is saying, through the mind, how can I get closer to God? That's what we just saw in the sentence. How can I know God, or whatever all that means? Through the mind, through mental, um, whether it's rational argument or what have you. And so, uh, those of you who've taken, I think just you've taken that Quran class, where, you know, I'll have everyone debate, okay, prove to me God exists, God doesn't exist. Okay. And then the, the end result of that debate is that you can't rationally prove God exists and you can't rationally disprove God, God exists. Yet, the philosophers are saying you can still reach God. Yeah. That's interesting because they're saying, like, it's a, it's a mental exercise. But I, I mean, for lack of a better term, I'm, I'm calling it a mental exercise. But, man. like, isn't so much of, like, our sort of spirituality not necessarily regulated to, like, thought. So, for the masses, their spirituality is just action. Yeah. You fast, you pray, right? And then if you can, you do hajj and you do zakat, right? That's how it is and will be for the vast majority of the masses. It's just body. Yeah. Uh, but for some people, it'll be thought, and for some people, it'll be heart. That's what I was going to ask. Is, is there a distinction between your heart and your thought? Um, I make a from, distinction. From where he, but from for... For him, I'm not sure if he makes a distinction. Okay. Yeah. But um, the point being that, yeah, for some, it might be in the realm of thought. Yeah. 
The swift historical reconstitution of Muslims of falsafa as hikmah is thus indicative of the thoroughgoing in integration of models of thinking and speaking constitutive of philosophy into larger modes of thinking and speaking constitutive of historical societies of Muslims. Conceived by Muslims as hikmah, wisdom from the divine, philosophy became not only textually tied, but also semantically and cosmologically tied to the revel revelatory truths of the universally wise God. Mm -hmm and thus became conceived in the vocabulary of Muslims as universal wisdom. Hikmah is also semantically tied to the concept of rule. Hukum. Hukum. The, from the same trilateral Arabic root. Thus, Hikmah philosophy is both the identification of the theoretical rules or values oper operative in the universe, as well as enactment and application of practical rules or values constant with those theoretical rules. Okay, so then there is a practical consequence of, of, of this. So what is he, what is he showing us? You, there is a whole development in this umbrella of what we call falsafa, of making, of, of showing or being what we would call Islamic, and then not being limited to thought. Much of it takes place in thought, but then it has consequences, right? In terms of the advice you would give to a king. Okay. And, uh, you know, a lot of, like, you know, like, like uh, I was mentioning, a lot of how America is structured in terms of policy is coming from the social sciences, which themselves will have various philosophical foundations, right? Like one theory is how do you address poverty, okay? So a theory we had for a while was will you set up these, these, these homes, um, you know, that will be, you know, that will uh, then you have special aid and such, um, and perhaps that's a way to, to alleviate poverty. And that was the rise of the projects. Okay? And then the theory shifted to saying, okay, let's take, uh, let's, let's take these families and move them into communities where families and professions are already established. And so maybe the kids who are growing up surrounded by this, it'll affect them. And so that's why you go to a place like, uh, you know, Naperville or Wilmette, Winnetka, you're going to find some Title eight housing uh, in those places. And that's part of a theory that someone developed and then was able to show something about it in data and then it became policy. And so we see right before our eyes how philosophy has practical consequences. And so philosophy is one of those things that may affect the thinker directly, but may affect the masses um, at a huge, like as a huge swath uh, by once it, once it gets uh, uh, embodied or endorsed by power. The other extreme of this would be the Mu'tazila, when they came into power, when they consciously tried to be philosophers and they tried to coerce all the scholars to uh, agree with their philosophy. And they had literally an inquisition. Right? And so there's the other extreme of it too, where philosophy can also uh, um, be used as a tool of power to subjugate. The Mu'tazilites, like, were, they were killed or they were... They were, they were, they were they executing and imprisoning the scholars who were in agreement with them, yeah. So that's where Imam, Imam Ahmed yeah. So Ahmed ibn Hanbal, that's uh, that's where he starts getting a lot of attention and promise, prom prominence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. The historic, the historical mobilization. Yeah. The historical mobilization of the word hikmah as falsafa expresses the conceptual recognition and oper operationalization in societies of Muslims of the claim of philosophy 
to know universal truth, and thus of the value of those truths as a basis for personal and social action. Practitioners of philosophy came to be designated as hukama. Yeah, hukama. Hukama. Those who have or who do hikmah. The same term was applied to physi- mm-hmm. physicians who, like philosophers, applied reason to identify user- universal truths practically applicable for individual and collective human well-being. Ibn Sina was, of course, the philosopher-physician in Exclusus. Excelsius. Excelsius. So, like, he was like... Exactly. He was the actor. Yeah, he did both. Yeah. Put the team on his way. He was the best at both. The reapprehension of falsifa as hikmah and its application in life, in the life of a Muslim, is expressed in the following introductory passage to the major work of brilliant 16th, 17th century intellectual, Mullah Sadra of Shiraz. Yeah. Uh, so, getting to that in a second. So this is another, another point, like just the evolution of the terminology. So a Hakim becomes this scholar of philosophy, and then that evolved into a, a term for a certain type of physician. So Hakim Archuleta, oh, yeah. right? That's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So Hakim Archuleta uh, doesn't use, you know, our common modern medicine. I mean, he has this whole tradition that he's been taught. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, the one time that, that I sat with him, he used to give all this advice like, you know, you should eat your your meals the way that they were prepared at home back home using the exact ingredients. One of the things we've done wrong is like so Daisy food, we've replaced a lot of those ingredients uh, with whatever is locally available. And so back then everything's like cooked in ghee, right? And here, uh, for a while ghee was hard to get, so you get like vegetable oil. And then on top of that, you know, all the, the, the news about fats and stuff made people even further away from, from ghee. And he's saying that's destroying the meal and thus destroying your health. Mm. Like he's saying these ancient traditions of meals have a whole health in them. And so if you pick and choose, you're corrupting the whole thing. Right? Is, remember, he, is, he, is he a Yunani Hakeem? Uh, I'm sure he's trained in it. Uh, so in terms of like Greek medicine, uh, I'm sure he's trained in some of that's that. What all Honestly, the, that's what all the Muslims are in, in India if you go there. Oh, really? Them. That's, I mean, if you go to Hakeem, that's where you're going to. Interesting. He's gonna, they're all, they're all like, they all, they all speak like that too. It's very much... So then I wouldn't be surprised if he's What you're way. eating, how yeah. you eat it. Like if yeah. you're going to, for any, most things, like the first thing they always ask you is don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this, mm-hmm. eat this, eat this, eat mm-hmm. this. And so even when we're with him for, for lunch and stuff, you know, they're, like people are, are, are bringing out lasagna and water and coke and like he's like getting repulsed like what kind of nonsense is this and he's just like having uh, like the fruits and he doesn't even drink water because in his tradition it's like all you need are three sips of water right that's all the water he takes and his mind I mean he's probably like seven years old and his mind is so fast like I remember like sitting with him thinking Man, you think really fast for somebody your age, right? And so he's living proof that it works. That's all his lectures on iTunes, and mm. it's just so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's a uh, that's the point. So I mean, there, he show, he's he's proof that there is something real here. I mean, he he was there for all the prayers and everything, right? Um, but the approach that he's providing of Islam might not seem to fit into the mainstream, yet has a thousand-year history. Yeah, they all, they all, what do they call it in Urdu? Or I don't know if it's Arabic, too. It's Dib Nabi. so yeah. the medicine of the Prophet. Yeah, that's so what that's what, yeah. what those guys follow, too. That, yeah. I mean, they, they have, I think it's like a mix of those. 
like that Greek influence, and then mm-hmm. also, you know, that the medicine of the prophet. Mm-hmm. I think who was it? Who's that famous scholar? Muslim scholar, Egyptian. I forget his name, but he wrote. There's a book. He wrote a book. He's like an actual fuffy, but he also wrote a book. It's like Divin over. Oh really? Yeah. Like it's somebody recent. You're saying. No, maybe like four or five hundred years ago. Oh, okay. Was that you with Fukurai? You're like, I'm glad to know you're not a body of scholars. I think it was. What? It was a student. He said, I'm not a Fukurai or something. And you said, said, I'm glad to know you're not a body of scholars. Yeah, he was was basically, yeah. Uh, 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 Do you remember who it was? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say it. No, you don't say it here. Yeah, I fail to remember this moment. It was was then Northwestern. Oh, really? Okay. So, like, basically, it was one of these classes, and the student wanted to make a statement. But I wanted to say, like, I'm not a scholar. But he goes, I'm not a fukara. <laughs> I go, you seem to know that you're not a body of thinkers. Yeah. yeah. That was great. Philosophy is the perfecting of the human soul by cognition of, of the real truths of existence as they actually are. Mm-hmm. And by judging their existence by attaining truth through demonstrations, not taking from conjecture or adherence to authority to the extent of human capacity. You could say that philosophy organizes the world in a rational order to the measure of human capacity so that one might resemble himself to the creator. And whereas the human emerges as a need of two ingredients, a spiritual form from the world of command and a sensible manner from the world of creation, and thereupon possesses in his soul both the aspect of attachment to the body and the aspect of abstraction from it, it is certainly the case that hikmah is made more capacious in measure of building up to the two potentials by cultivating the two capacities towards two skills, theoretical abstraction and practical attachment. Okay, so this is, this is sort of summing it up, trying to explain it. And what is the goal? It is to get closer to the divine. And so it winds up being, among all the different schools of philosophy, uh, one of the big schools of philosophy that do this is called illumination philosophy. Uh, you were going to say the Illuminati. Yeah, it's the Illuminati. Yeah. In fact, I think the second question is, is, uh, might even be about, about uh, the Illuminationists. Okay, but it, so then uh, it becomes a particular school. So you'll have like idealist philosophy, realist philosophy, pragmatic philosophy, things like that. Uh, so American philosophy is usually pragmatic philosophy. Okay, so I mean... I mean, the two main thinkers that I know of that are part of this, one is William James, who's written a lot about psychology and religion and stuff, and another is Charles Peirce, who's very fascinating, who writes proofs of God's existence. Um, um, and, and so another way that this is looked at is American philosophy tends to be pragmatic, meaning Americans tend to be very pragmatic people. And so that, those are different categories. And then this one category of so-called Islamic philosophy is the illumination philosophy. Yeah. Have you ever read... Uh that guy's name Richard Rorty? Yeah, no. he's like he's supposed to be a big pragmatic. Yeah, like Amer. Yeah, it's, yeah. I remember reading about American philosophers and a lot of them tend to follow this line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Rorty. I, I mean, I haven't read him at least not yet. Yeah. Um, okay, good team. The goal of the theoretical art is coloring of the soul in the image of existence as it is ordered in its perfection and completion and it's becoming a rational world resembling the source world itself. The art of hikmah is that sought and requested by the master of the messengers. Preservation and peace be upon him and his family in his supplication. Oh my Lord, show us things as they are. Okay, sound a lot like the Sufis. Dun, 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 which will be the next question. And so, I mean, if you read that paragraph, 
doesn't really sound all that controversial. How, wait, how does it sound like? I don't get it. Like Sidian? Sufis. Because uh, for, for many of the Sufis, the core is to see reality for what it is. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, Hakika. And so the philosophers are doing it by way of thought. Okay. And again, a key point here is, like, read through that. This is a, a, a textbook statement of what we would call Islamic philosophy, and there's nothing controversial there. In fact, it's very, it has very high, high aspirations within Islam, right? Through the Prophet, peace be upon him. And, I mean, a, a book like this, I think, is very, very important for our time because you have uh, all kinds of different Muslims here in America. And the question is, how do you fit everybody together as opposed to how do you split everybody and say, no, they're not real, they're not real and such. Okay, let's do a little bit more. This passage highlights the philosopher's conception of their project as directly related to prophethood and knowledge of God. The prophet himself seeks from God precisely the art of hikmah. The philosophers conceive of a prophet as a human being who possesses such extraordinarily developed capacities of reason, akal, intellectual insight, al and imagination. Faculties that are present. So, so, this, so I was like, let's just skip that one. So, this is, so this is interesting. This is not just imagination. This is strength of imagination. Al-Uwa. Yeah. Okay, continue. Faculties that are present in all persons to some less, to some less developed degree, that he is able thereby to attain direct conjunction with, to apprehend an insight, an instant, in an instant, as a whole. That is to say, all at once, the pure, formless, universal truth that issues from the active, rational intellect, God, through the celestial domains. In other words, a prophet is an uber philosopher. Which, in turn, implies that all philosophers are, for all conceptual and practical purposes, engaged in the same project as are the prophets, mm -hmm. that of hikmah, or seeking to know universal truth as it is. Really, it is through the perfection of pure reason. On these terms, one might almost say, upon beholding of a great philosopher, there is but for grace God goes a prophet. Okay, so... So the language that's being used might be, you know, um, might be trepidations. I just have to laugh at this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're saying, yeah, this is all real. And, and what's fascinating is that all these different groups, whether we talk about the philosophers, whether we talk about the Sufis, whether we talk about the people of law, they all speak of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as the greatest of greatest, right? Yeah, and that he has people. all of this. He's like, he's the embodiment of all this. So the philosophers will say that Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him was the ultimate philosophers. Sufis will say he's the ultimate Sufi. You know, the people of Allah will say he was the ultimate just person. Um, and so that sounds pretty pious to me, as opposed to the work of renegades. You know. All right, continue. How much time do you guys have? I have a question. Yeah. So if the Prophet was a philosopher, yeah. I'm just thinking he didn't say anything of his original thought, so how would he use his reason to come to... You want me to mess you up? I'm yeah. with that. Not yet. I'll, I'll, I'll do it a little bit later. <laughs> I kind of want to hear the answer. Yeah. No, keep going. We'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Like, I can't wait to just Here, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just I'll give you a, a little taste of it, you know, to help you digest before later on. Okay. Before uh, So, so um, I'll give you maybe two points. One is, uh, did Jabir salam give pro the Prophet peace on words? No, he, I mean, you could also say he just inspired him, right? Or like the Quran was inspired. So that would be then. His heart. 
that would that would be the point. But that's still not his own thought in our belief, right? Is he it? Grabbed yeah. Him, right? I mean, that's from. He grabs him. Okay. Oh. Yeah. No, but that doesn't that doesn't like yeah that's cool. It doesn't. <laughs> matter, like, no, because it doesn't matter like how it manifested, okay. right? Because we still say the Quran is from Allah Subhanahu Taala. Yeah, so, like, but it's coming through him. Yeah, it's coming through him, right? So yeah. even if he's inspired to say it, and he's, because yeah. Allah also says we placed it in your heart. Okay. So like. That's a clear. Okay. That's a clear. It doesn't matter like the physical process. By so, which it but that goes with the assumption that his thought is independent. Right. Then that's what he's saying about philosophy. Yeah, and I'm You're saying, saying philosophy is like. Oh. I'm saying, uh, is the prophet's thought independent? Yes. So okay, forgive me if I'm. This is like bad out of the status. I don't mean. <coughs> this is gonna be a good stand. Um, <laughs> yeah. There were instances in which so the Prophet peace be upon never never sinned, but weren't there some instances in which, like a mistake was made? Mm-hmm. I don't know if mistake sorry word. That's what I'm afraid to say. Mm-hmm. And then the and then Allah revealed what mm-hmm. the other thing was. Yeah, so it's showing well like him using his yeah. own reason Agency. as opposed to everything just being like Potentially. direct commandment. Or. That uh, so the prophets, the prophets' actions are guidance for us, mm-hmm. are lessons for us, and his quote unquote mistakes are also lessons for yeah. us. Okay. Meaning, it was intentional for him to make what looked like a mistake as a way to teach oh. us, right? Yeah. So there's some things he's teaching us by way of saying do this, and there's other things he's teaching us by way of not doing it the right way. And him learning at the same time. Potentially, right? But the point being that, therefore, Allah willed for the mistake to happen. Right. But can't that exist with also simultaneously with the idea that he's using his reason? So, we're saying, yeah, it can, but I'm saying possibly not. No, but he's saying, read. So, I like that gif right now with the lady. So, think of it yeah. this way. Yeah, think of it this way. Um, so, the, the very famous story is that this uh, blind man comes to talk to the prophet, right? Peace be upon him. The prophet is basically, I'm paraphrasing language, saying, okay, hold on, I'm talking to this person. And, and the blind man is waiting, and then he tugs at the prophet, and the prophet uh, frowns at him. And the blind man is blind, so he can't see the frown. And the prophet's frown probably still looked like a smile, yeah. right? I mean, they would recognize it as a frown. Um, so who made that happen? If it was something that, that then becomes part of the Quran, right? Yeah. So see what I'm saying? That... Uh, we can argue from one lens that the words are not his own. Okay. But then we can, uh, we could, that would then imply that he has words that are his own. Okay. Or we can argue that none of his words are his own. That all the things that he does that are registered as, for lack of a better term, mistakes, were also things he was meant to do. Yeah, process it for a while. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me see if my 2 o'clock is here. Do you see anybody looking out there? No, but I have to leave. Do you want me to check? Uh, if you just open the door, see if anybody's sitting there. Huh? Uh-huh. No. Oh, okay. Uh, it should be a couple people. No, why do you, Some why Muslim looking people. Out to, if I was at 2 o'clock, you wouldn't send someone out. I thought you guys talked about it earlier. No. No? Okay, we'll continue. Uh. Hey, okay, because we're almost done with this section. Okay, All right. Yeah, we're paid, the historical centrality. All right, give me a second. Just take this. So, so more to your point, Sajid. Uh, what makes it hard to understand some of this is that these people are operating in a different universe of thought. Why don't you put the? It'd be like, kind of like saying, I don't know if this will confuse more. 
You know, you have this person who falls on the ground. And a guy comes along and says, I'm a doctor. And the person looks at him and says, yeah, he's fine. But the, guy, the doctor was a dentist. Right? And so as far as he's evaluating, yeah, his teeth are perfect. So therefore he's healthy. Right? But the... So the point is that one of the struggles of what he's addressing here is that there are different universes of Islam all present at the same time, potentially. Okay. What Allah is going to accept is a different issue, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of how Islam has manifested, it's, it's, it, it's too simplistic to say they're contradictions, they're different universes. Right. So you're saying philosophers they're, they're, they're living in one particular universe with a particular outlook. The, the jurists are living in a different universe with a different uh, outlet or uh, outlook. Is that, is that what Shahab Ahmed says or what the philosophers and... No, no, this is, so this is, this is how uh, the history of Islam has played out, okay. right? And so uh, Shahab Ahmed is asking, well, so what is Islam then? Okay. What can we define that's common among those two? Yeah. Now, is Allah Ta'ala going to accept both? Allah knows best. The historical centrality and foundationality of the history of Muslims of the of the to the history of Muslim of the philosophers rational striving to know truth as it really is can most economically be illustrated by way of the philosopher's definition of God. Ibn Sina conceptualized God as the sole necessary existent. Wajib al wujud. Is this unmoved mover also? Uh, it's peril, but I think that's actually not something different. Right? Upon which all other existence are necessarily contingent. But what's that W slash for? Uh, with which? Oh, no. sorry. If we're speaking about Allah, then the question is, is it a capital W? Yeah. It is this philosopher's, philosopher's conceptualization of God that became the operative concept of the divinity taught in madrasas to students of theology via the standard introductory textbook on logic, physics, and metaphysics, which was taught to students in madrasas in cities and towns throughout the vast region from the Balkans to Bengal in the rough period between uh, 1350 and 1850. For, and, so 500 years. <clears throat> this is the, the introductory courses that this stuff is being taught. Yeah. And which was tellingly entitled Hidayat al-Hikmah, or Guide to Hikmah. In the discourse of Madrasa theology, God is conceptually posited as and routinely referred to as the necessary existent. Perhaps as the ultimate symptom of the confusion of the sciences of theology and philosophy of which Ibn Khaldun spoke. In other words, mainstream Islamic theology, Sunni and Shi'i, in the millennium-long age of the Madrasa, conceptualized God on a philosophical foundation whose logic and epistemology had led its acknowledged progenitor, the philosopher Ibn Sina, whom we can legitimately call the man who effectively defined God for Muslims, Mm -hmm. to conclusions that were condemned as exemplary unbelief. How is this Islamic? So, yeah, the last part, last part is pretty fascinating. Our conception of God as, a, as an Ummah-wide population, for the most part, comes from him. Okay? And yet, if you look at his stuff directly, um, it looks like heresy. Okay? So how is that <laughs> Islam? I right? remember Shaykh uh, Akram Nadwi making that mm-hmm. point, because, you know, he's from a traditional mother as a... Mm-hmm. Uh, curriculum or whatever and he says yeah like you know people make it very sort of dogmatic and he, he's I think he was trying to illustrate this point and he said it's funny you know how uh, Imam Ghazali is seen as sort of the more uh, traditionalist but also like you know less 
firm scholar by a lot of Muslims, by traditional Muslim in the in these senses. And he said, you know, it's funny, he uh, pronounced unbelief on Ibn Sina, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, the sort of stereotypical unbelief pronouncing scholar we look at, Ibn Taymiyyah, actually said he wasn't from mm -hmm. what he said. Like, yeah, so how's it? Yeah, that's, that's totally wild, yeah. Yeah. And Yahya Nisho says, with no Ibn Sina, you have no Ibn Taymiyyah, you have no Ghazali. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because I think that's his other study, right? He studies Ibn Sina and uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. That's really his studies, yeah. So how did, he, how did he define God for Muslims? So meaning in I terms of how we perceive it, okay, so what do all these words mean? Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Yeah. He's the one who basically uh, provides the whole logical system. He's the foundation. Yeah, it's, Wait, who it's, is? Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina? Yeah. The, the heretic. The heretic is the one of the most <laughs> fundamental concept in Islam, for lack of a better word, concept. God. <laughs> you know, is, is coming to us from a person who many have categorized as a heretic. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating, isn't it? Heretic. Even when we speak of, like, you know, the, the major... But how, yeah. why would they take from him? Because it actually was correct. Right? That's how we do, Tom. Were they recognizing <laughs> that? Like, in their minds, were they saying, okay, like... There's problems with some of his lines of thought, but like this or no. I think the question that um, that uh, Shab Ahmad is asking is, yeah, how does it all play out, right? Meaning, it could be that they said, okay, this is good about him, this is not, but there's probably thirty other thinkers where they could, you know, um, say that. Uh, I'm guessing Ibn Sina provided this whole system of thought, and the words he chose. Uh, were too difficult, right? Even, even the way some of the points, you know, when, when I'm rephrasing, well, what about this way, what about that way? Then it starts becoming more palatable. Yeah, I'm not understanding yeah. anything when we're reading it until mm -hmm. they say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So, so it could be, I, my guess is that it's something like that. That the language that Ibn Sina is, in, is using, um, people are finding heretical. Um, yet the concepts, once people understand them, um, but yeah, that's, that's all sound. It's like every conversation between Muslims in America who like want to talk about Islam, it's like a microcosm of this. Yeah, yeah, like totally. Just from the like really speaking a different language, yeah. Faith foundations, it's like you said eight things that would like apparently contradict if you dive mm -hmm. a little deeper, like the different sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so this is the global level, historical over a couple, a thousand and a half years. Okay, let's uh, continue next time. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين